Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by former Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley, who's currently a Spring 2015 Fellow at the Institute of Politics. Ms. Coakley, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So what made you pursue law as a, as, as a career? in the first place. Oh, gee, I, I say this. I watched a lot of Perry Mason when I was a kid uh, and was an avid reader and loved Nancy Drew. And, and I've always been attracted to solving the mystery, doing an investigation. Uh, and I certainly graduated from college at a time when more and more women were going to law school. And I could see myself as a trial lawyer. And I think that's what drew me to the practice. And I, I love the work as a lawyer, both in the private sector and as I have been for the last 16 years as a district attorney and then as attorney general for Massachusetts. Now, one of the, the bigger things that you're known for as attorney general is your work on DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. Back in the 60s, 50s, um, when civil rights was a big issue, uh, the law, the courts, had a huge role to play where legislatures were unwilling to act. Did you ever think that you would be a part of something that would uh, kind of follow in that in that footsteps and by using the courts um, to you know make make change and on social issues? It's certainly not something I had anticipated when I first ran for district attorney. And frankly, when people urged me to run for attorney general, I knew that the AG did a lot of consumer protection work. We did that in predatory lending. Uh, we had a role to play in uh, looking at energy rates and in uh, labor, but this kind of pushing us to the right side of history and civil rights was not something I had anticipated. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to talk about DOMA in particular. Can you give us some background? Why was it enacted? What did it do? And and why was it so important? Sure. Well, really quickly, uh, at the end of the 90s, uh, Hawaii was looking at passing a law that would uh, make marriage equality the law for Hawaii. And there were people very concerned that people go to Hawaii, they would get married, and then they would go to the other 49 states, and the states would have to recognize that and give it full faith and credit. And this was a time when I think the ideas around marriage equality were still a little under the radar. The movement hadn't made its case, so to speak, and people hadn't come forward as much as they did later. And I really want to say the the bravery of uh, people who were willing to step forward and say, you know, I'm your sister, I'm your colleague, I'm your uncle, uh, I'm gay, uh, and I deserve the same right to live my life the way I want to and marry whom I like. That's part of what changed it. But this, the Congress passed this statute saying uh, we are going to defend marriage, and it was really done so that a state like Hawaii or other states wouldn't be able to uh, create a place where people could be married and then go live in the rest of the United States. But as our case said, and we came to find out, the only purpose of the Defense of Marriage Act was to discriminate against gay couples. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, Massachusetts was the first state that actually did through the courts in 2003, effective 2004, um, say under Massachusetts' constitution, uh, it is not uh, constitutional to prohibit uh, people of the same sex from marrying each other. There's no reason to do it, by the way. There's no rational uh, reason to uh, discriminate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was the beginning of what happened here. For people in Massachusetts, we could marry in 2004. But the Defense of Marriage Act was still in effect, and it affected people in Massachusetts who worked for the federal government, or it affected people who were looking at federal benefits, whether it was Social Security or they worked in the military. 
So we started to say, gee, this is great that Massachusetts allows for it, but what about the fairness to people in our state um, where we have two sets of books for people who are married under state law but not under federal law? Mm -hmm. So in 2009, you actually filed suit as attorney general for Massachusetts. Um, Can you explain how that suit actually came about? Sure. And Mary Bonato, who is a very smart, strategic, uh, hardworking attorney who was one of the lawyers who brought the original Goodrich suit to Massachusetts saying Massachusetts shouldn't discriminate, actually had talked to me when I was running for attorney general. She said, I will plan to challenge on behalf of couples, uh, married couples in Massachusetts, the Defense of Marriage Act just in Massachusetts. I would like you to consider representing the state on behalf of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to make the case that the state doesn't want to discriminate. And so this was uh, back in 06, 07, and I said, okay. (laughs) Mary started to uh, say no to. She's very persuasive. And uh, I, and uh, particularly people in my staff, our current Attorney General Maura Healy, started to think about ways, what would that case look like? What case could we make? And so as lawyers, uh, we made the case through the statistics we had in the state by taking testimony from people in looking at the argument that was different from individuals' arguments, you're discriminating against me personally, but saying, you know, Massachusetts has decided that we are going to let people marry who they love, and we don't want to be discriminating against them, and it's costly to us. We have to keep different records uh, as to Social Security and federal benefits and money that comes into the state. And we really think the only reason for the Defense of Marriage Act was to discriminate against gay couples. And that was the theory and the facts in which we went forward to win in federal court and in the First Circuit. So yours wasn't the only uh, such case to to challenge DOMA, but it was the first. Um, It seemed like after that, dominoes started to fall. It was interesting how quickly, with our success in federal court and in the First Circuit, and then, of course, the case that actually went up to the Supreme Court was out of New York, but similar issues. That case actually was behind ours, but for technical reasons, strategic reasons, it was a better case to go up to the Supreme Court at the time. It was interesting and I think rewarding to see how state after state started to recognize when they looked at the issue legally and factually, when they heard from people in their states, to say, you know what, there really is no good reason for DOMA there, other than discriminatory reasons. There was no rational basis, as we say in the law, for this federal statute to remain. Mm. And some, it was through initiative, some it was through vote, some it was through courts. Um, But it has been, I think, rewarding to see how quickly people have recognized that giving people the right to marry who they love certainly doesn't interfere with anybody else's rights. And it strengthens families. It strengthens our economy, as we saw in Massachusetts. Um, And uh, I think for once, um, this kind of moving and enlarging people's civil rights has moved quickly and has moved well. And we were proud to have uh, been here in Massachusetts trying to push the needle on this issue. What's interesting to me is how, uh, you know, most people associate states' rights as a conservative concept. Uh, But here was a ostensibly liberal uh, uh, push on states' rights that was successful. Do you think that's abnormal, or is this something that you've seen throughout history? Um, It is. If you think back to the 60s and 70s, when you started asking me about civil rights, remember, it was by and large states that were discriminating against voter rights and civil rights based on race and other 
uh, categories. So once the statute was passed at the federal level and the federal court started to enforce it, it's true that the federal court was usually looking at states to saying, hey, on the federal level, we are enlarging people's civil rights. You can't states make a decision to discriminate against them. Uh, we turned that argument a little bit on its head by saying, you know what, federal government here, Massachusetts has been out in front. We have been enlarging people's rights, and you shouldn't be behind us on this. So I think the thing to remember is not so much about whether it's states' rights or federal rights. It's about uh, whether there's a discriminatory impetus here. And whether it's at the state level or the federal level, I think our argument was it's the discrimination that's wrong. And that when we can, as we give great deference to state statutes or to federal statutes, you still have to have a rational basis for the statute. And if it is discriminatory, particularly against uh, people that we don't want to discriminate against, it's hard to justify that. And uh, we were proud to use that argument that we are enlarging people's rights and you federal government should follow in this instance. Another way that uh, it was kind of a flip script with civil rights is that um, the case for marriage equality as a social movement, um, it changed relatively quickly compared to civil rights. Uh, since the early 90s to now, uh, every, it's basically changed entirely. Whereas with uh, civil rights, anti-miscegenation laws, those kinds of things were overturned well before popular consensus uh, uh, came around and said it was, it was fine. Do you think that this marriage equality argument would have worked in the courts had the social impetus not been there? Uh, I think the social impetus in this instance uh, was a really strong factor. That uh, I also think uh, that there was such a long history uh, in the states and in the federal government uh, with racial discrimination that still we are not where we should be on that issue. And looking at trying to uh, address racial discrimination and the economic discrimination that comes from racism uh, has been difficult, I think, for this country to get at. By the same token, this issue of gay rights um, has been under the radar for a long time. And it is, uh, as it started to emerge in the 60s and 70s on the coast in San Francisco or in some of our other uh, major cities, um, I think a lot of people uh, just were unaware of the issue because of the stigma, so to speak, that was attached to it. And and again, I cite the bravery of people who were willing to come forward and say, you know, this is my life, this is about me. And having people recognize that this was enlarging of someone's rights that didn't affect their own. I mean, the argument was, oh, if we allow for gay marriage, it'll affect um, uh, so-called straight marriages. A completely irrational argument hasn't proven to be true has nothing to do with that. And I think some of the ignorance that people had about gay individuals, gay, lesbian, transgender, we're still working to enlarge rights for transgender people, um, it has been an education issue. But it has been a very personal issue when people say, well, oh, it's my son or it's my colleague. Um, that was really key, I think, to allowing both the courts to move forward to say, we're going to allow this, and for other people to accept it. And remember, the enlargement of right here uh, didn't in any way diminish anybody else's right to a job or to income. And, and I think some of the push-pull in some discriminatory issues has uh, people on two sides saying, well, if, I, if we enlarge your rights, mine suffer. Often that's a false argument, but it, it certainly was not true in this instance at all. 
Now, uh, we recently had Barney Frank on, uh, and I understand that you had him recently at a, uh, a discussion, a study group at yes. the Institute of Politics. Yes. Um, I'm curious how that uh, how that discussion uh, turned out, but I'm also curious. The Institute of Politics, of course, has a number of undergraduates uh, who are who are involved. Um, I'm in- interested to know what you learned from them. Um, because it seems like on this issue especially, uh, it's been youth-driven uh, in the in the way that, uh, I don't know, I, I can certainly speak for my generation, uh, this was always a no-brainer for us. Yes, and, and interestingly, it, it has, and I am happy to say I've said this, I think that in 20, 30 years, people will look back and say, what was this all about? It made no sense. But for... Uh, a generation coming out of World War II with often, look, religious influences, other societal influences. Um, and look, Barney Frank is not a digital native. He's the first to say it. He was a terrific guest, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he told a very uh, poignant story about his own life and being able to, at some stage, come out. Um, and, and that was not easy. He was one of those pioneers who was willing to say, this is who I am. And that made a difference, I think, to start to get people to change their minds so that for your generation, it is a no-brainer. It should be a no-brainer. But those things don't happen so easily without people like Barney Frank or others in the movement like Mary Bonato and those who said, this is wrong, this is about us and our families, and we are going to challenge it in the courts and we are going to organize around it. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of work behind that. Um, that made sense. And I think the result of that is that your generation now says, oh, this is a no-brainer. And that's good. That's That should be the result. Well, Mrs. Coakley, thank you so much for uh, being on today. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.